I invite you to open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4, we're looking at the first 14 verses of this chapter this morning. In our pastor's welcome class, which we used to refer to as the new members class, but realize it's more of a welcome class that introduces people to the potential of being members. Um, and so we've changed the name of it. But in that pastor's welcome class, I always share my belief that the single greatest outward indicator of your spiritual health is your commitment to the local church. Sometimes people wince at that and they think, oh no, there's, there's so many more personal things, you know, like, like my private quiet time with the Lord that, that, that elevates, you know, that really shows that outward indication of my commitment to the Lord. But it's actually this, I, I think it's consistent in scripture. It portrays corporate worship. What we're doing now, this gathering together of the saints, not just Sunday mornings, but whenever we gather together to, to pray, to fellowship, to enjoy uh, communing with God and enjoying fellowship with one another. Scripture portrays that as, a, as the primary expression of our faith. And so if that expression is weak in your life, then it, it is safe, I think, to assume that it is hiding other less obvious struggles. Let me be clear, church attendance doesn't save you. Right? And... and the fact that you might be here every week doesn't mean you have no problems in your life. We all know that. But not attending church or frequently switching churches can reveal growing concerns, whether those concerns are spiritual or moral in nature. And so we should consider our heart in this matter. I say that because attending church is one of the first things that we stop doing when we face doubt. Uh, a Barna survey found that, this was I think in 2017, it found that roughly two-thirds of Christians experienced doubt. And my guess is that a third of them were not being totally honest. Out of those who experienced doubt, the most common response was that they stopped attending church. In reaction to their doubt that they were experiencing, they just stopped attending. That was the most common response. And so the lack of fellowship among believers cannot help but have a negative impact upon your faith. Isolating yourself from others. On the other hand, those who became more involved in the church, those who devoted themselves more to the word in order to, to wrestle with their doubts, they came through it and in most cases would say that they are much stronger in their faith for doing so. So the covenant community has struggled with doubt from the beginning. The prevalence of spiritual warfare exists on several fronts. Temptations arise from the world, the flesh, and the devil. We've all experienced them and we've all dealt with trying to respond properly to them. And if that represents the greatest threat to our faith, then the stronger they get, when, when the opposition increases or escalates in its intensity, oftentimes the weaker we become. Strengthening opposition inevitably raises doubts in the minds of even the most committed disciples. I mean... You, you, just think about the examples in Scripture. 
And so overcoming external opposition, this is the, the theme I have there in your bulletin, overcoming external opposition involves persevering through internal doubts within the context of the covenant community. Recognizing that we are to bring those doubts together, right, in this context of covenant community, not to isolate ourselves from them. We're not going to deal with that external opposition in our life on our own. If we think we are, we're, we're going to be experiencing far more severe trials than we thought we might endure, right? Trying to do that on our own is not healthy. So let us read, let us ask the Lord for his help before we read this passage of scripture. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for examples like this that stir us up and, and prepare us for opposition. Lord, we've faced opposition to various degrees in our life. We all know what it feels like. We all know the stresses it brings. And Lord, we even anticipate an increasing level of opposition in the years ahead. We know that many churches around the world are experiencing an escalation of opposition and maybe even in a strengthening of the numbers who are opposed to your church. Lord, help us to be encouraged by this passage. Help us to be prepared by this passage for those days when we experience that or for the experience that we have even now. Again, we recognize that that opposition can come in many forms. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Help us not to minimize any of those forms, but to prepare our hearts for them. And to give you the glory for any perseverance that we enjoy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Read with me, Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. Now when Samballot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. But when Samballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed that our God, or we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. 
And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of, of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Amen. This is God's holy word. What's well, an encouraging passage to us. It, it ought to stir us up in the work of the Lord and you know, working for his kingdom purposes in light of opposition that we face. The first point I want to highlight for you, and if you're following along in the outline in your bulletin, it's to seek divine justice. Seek divine justice. There's a, a repeating pattern in this passage that begins with sort of an explanation of what the opposition was up to. That was followed by a, a combination of prayer and action. Every time Nehemiah responds or the people respond, there's both prayer, a trusting in the Lord, combined with a strategic action, a response that they do. And so this section in the beginning, verses 1 through 6, we see the opposition, Sanballat and Tobiah, jeering and taunting the people with questions, challenging their abilities, uh, the work that they're doing, their ability to accomplish it. That section is followed by Nehemiah's prayer in verses 4 and 5, and then in verse 6, a commitment to continuing to build. We see that even in the face of that jeering and taunting that seems like it was just daily and incessant upon them, they continued to build. And Nehemiah's prayer is recorded there in verses 4 and 5. Well, we noted the beginning of the work in the previous chapter, and as the People are all listed and named in the sections that they worked upon in chapter 3. Now we see this escalation of oppression and opposition from their enemies. The enemies were also mentioned in chapter 2. Sanballat's displeasure upon Nehemiah's arrival. As soon as he got to Jerusalem, we know that Sanballat and Tobiah were there and they were upset, it said. Right? Chapter 2, verse 10. That Anger quickly turned into jeering and taunting as the volunteers began to gather in chapter 2, 19. Then we don't hear anything about them in chapter 3, but now at the beginning of chapter 4, we hear that Sambalat and Tobiah are greatly enraged. And so their tactics, or Sambalat's tactics at least, are, have not changed. Tobiah is still taunting them, mocking them. But they've taken it to another level now. They're, they're enraged by what's taking place. They see that the work is being done and it's, and it's being completed quickly and effectively. They don't explain that in their taunting. You guys are doing pretty good work. I'm impressed. I mean, they're mocking the work that they're doing. But they can see clearly that it's, that it's working. The people are gathering together unified. They're getting the work done, it's going to be a very 
strong wall, even if not professional, right? It's, it's nine, nine feet wide, that the, this wall that they're building. This is, they're, they're not going small, right? They're making a statement. So Nehemiah provides several examples of the kinds of things that Samballat said in verse 2. After we see, oh, you know what, I also want to point out at the beginning of verse 2, where it says, and he said, in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria. So we haven't heard that before. Now we see that he's surrounded by others. He's got a little bit of an audience for his jeering and taunting. It's, that tends to draw a crowd. They're beginning to hear him, and this is an army. He's gathering up more people to, to potentially bring greater harm Right, to the builders, to, to make the threat that much stronger. So again, his tactics are the same. He's still doing the same thing. He's still jeering and taunting them, but he's escalated that with this rage that he's experiencing, and he's now involving a wider audience for his jeering. And then we get the example in the rest of this verse of the kinds of questions he was taunting them with. He mocks them for being feeble and incapable of completing such a difficult challenge. He questions their ability and their willpower to complete the work. And in fact, we can assume that these taunts occurred so often and so regularly that the people began to experience some doubts. Because later on in verse 10, what do we read? In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to to rebuild the wall. Doubts setting in. I don't know how long they've been enduring this, their jeers and taunts, but it seems to be working. Those are doubts that arose after hearing that same taunting questions probably for several weeks since we know that they, at that point, had built half of the wall. We know the full job take, took 52 days. So in their greatest optimism, they're at least a few weeks in, and they've built half the wall. Tobiah is like this little scrawny sidekick right in the cartoons. He's got a sharp tongue. You can hear his high-pitched voice as he mocks the quality of their work, suggesting that a fox can get up on it and easily topple it. Clearly not true. A nine-foot wall is not going to easily be toppled. So the lies of the enemy, though, begin to take foothold. And they think that there's just too much rubble. And maybe the, the stones that they're using, they're not strong. They've been burned, and they're going to crumble with a little pressure. So they begin to believe it. Notice, though, that the, the, they had the support. Remember, they had the support of King Artaxerxes. They, they had received authorization. And so... In all likelihood, the threat of these enemies was empty. If they knew what was good for them, they weren't going to, to completely disregard the authority of King Artaxerxes and the Persian army and use a portion of the army, which was under Persian's rule, against the king's edict. But that doesn't necessarily change the fact that their taunts and their threats were having an impact. And they clearly despised the Jews. So Nehemiah, he prays. He begins to pray in verse 4. 
turn back turn back their taunt on their heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. So this is not simply a prayer for God's protection. Protect us in the face of our enemy, right? Surround us. Give us strength. Not, I'm not saying that Nehemiah didn't pray that way. He, he probably did, but the heart of this prayer is one of judgment. He's calling upon the Lord to give Sambalat and Tobiah an experience of exile. May they be sent away from their families and homes. May they be removed from their resources. May all the taunts that they are giving to us fall upon them. May the very things that they mock Israel for become concerns of their own. And so his prayer continues, and it broadens to include their just judgment in verse 5. Nehemiah prays that they not experience forgiveness, that their sin would not be covered, which is how the Old Testament describes atonement. And so some think this is horribly vindictive and misguided. Maybe this is... Was, was only acceptable before Jesus taught us to love our enemies and pray for them. In Matthew 5, 44, in the Sermon on the Mount. Modern commentators, you know, they may sympathize with his anger. You know, in fact, one of the commentators I read said, uh, let's not criticize him. Let's understand the, the, the stress he's under here. And yet he goes on to correct him. For this prayer. It doesn't excuse the things he said in their minds, right? He can be commended for praying rather than taking vengeance into his own hands, but the Christian can never adopt Nehemiah's attitude. Had Nehemiah understood the gospel, he wouldn't have prayed this way. Now, has Nehemiah gone too far in this prayer? We could compare this prayer to several of the imprecatory psalms, the psalms that call up judgment from God upon his enemies and ours. Maybe we shouldn't sing those psalms. Maybe we should avoid them. In fact, one of the psalms we sung this morning concluded with a bit of judgment. Actually, both of them, Psalm 2 and Psalm, the first one. Psalm 104. You could look at Psalm 137. Very graphically describes God, or a call for a blessing upon those who would dash their enemies' children against the rocks. Well, if you notice in our Trinity Psalter hymnal, we sing 150 psalms. It doesn't skip any. We don't avoid the difficult ones. We sing them. And so clearly we're not in agreement with this view, right? We're, we're not in agreement with this view that many modern commentaries take that suggests that Nehemiah is out of place to pray in this way. Or that at least it's out of place under the New Covenant community. 
Now, we believe the psalmist's call for justice is perfectly aligned with the new covenant mission as well. To suggest otherwise is to create a massive chasm between the Old and the New Testaments. In fact, the cross not only assures believers of their security, it also declares to unbelievers the punishment that their sin deserves. We don't minimize what Christ experienced on the cross. He went to hell on our behalf. He experienced the pains and the wrath of God, which was like hell. I'm not suggesting that he literally descended into hell. Let me clarify that. <laughs> but he experienced the wrath and torment of God in our place. And so the judgment that awaits those who reject the free offer of the gospel is also described in this way. And it's not something you can sugarcoat. To do so is to minimize the threat that they face themselves. Again, that's not to say that we, we, we ought to cast off compassion, not evangelize. Let's just turn all of our evangelism efforts into prayers of judgment upon those who refuse to worship God, those who reject him. Simply pray for the death of the wicked. We are to continue to proclaim the gospel to preach the gospel, confident that God will turn the hearts of some, that he will show compassion upon them. But we can and should pray that God would put an end to any who stand opposed to the coming of his kingdom, as Matt prayed earlier. J.I. Packer said the key principle here is stated in Psalm 139, verses 21 through 22, another imprecatory psalm. He says, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Packer says, the nearer we come to this state of mind, which is a spinoff from the desire that God's will be done, his kingdom come and his name be hallowed and glorified, the less problem shall we have with vengeance prayers. So the imprecatory Psalms reflect a zeal for God's will, his holiness, his glory, his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. To have a problem with Nehemiah's prayers, to have a problem with a major theme of Scripture, both in the Old and New Testament. The problem is not Nehemiah or Scripture, but the minimization of God's justice and his wrath against sin and wickedness. And so in addition to praying, the volunteers, they continued to build. We read in verse 6. They focused their attention upon the task and they got half the wall completed. Everyone was working simultaneously. Seems like they're working at roughly the same pace. And so this wall is just going up all the way around the city. And they're doing the work enthusiastically. It says that their mind is set to the work. Right? They had a mind to work. And so let us consider here. First of all, the, it's good to seek divine justice as you continue to pursue obedience to your calling. They knew it was God's will for them to build this wall, and so they did so in the face of opposition. And yet they also prayed. They prayed for God's justice to fall. 
And so we can respond boldly to the injustices that are committed against us. You don't have to remain passive and calm in the face of persecution. We have already seen Nehemiah's verbal response to the taunts. He was confident that God would protect them. And we can assume that he's not gone silent in responding to those who are taunting against him. But we know now that he is also praying for their judgment to come. And obviously, there is a time to be silent and there is a time to speak. So think about in your own life, what are the the lies that the enemy taunts you with? Where have you been tempted to doubt? When has the work felt overwhelming? Has your ability been called into question or the scope of your mission seemed too great to achieve? And so you just give up. Regardless of our outward response to those challenges, Trusting the Lord will always involve prayer. And that is a theme in Nehemiah. Nehemiah knew how to pray, and he frequently did so. And those prayers may include calls for God's mercy. We see that exemplified in Jonah. They may also invoke God's wrath, which we see very clearly in Nehemiah's prayer here. And so if the Holy Spirit is leading us in prayer, then we can be certain that both ways at various times, that we will pray in both of those ways. We will pray for God's mercy and we will pray for his wrath, maybe even in the same prayer. And depending on God's will, he will answer it accordingly. So zeal for God's kingdom involves the desire for every form of opposition to be removed whether that's through transformation or through annihilation, destruction. Our desire that God's will might be done on earth as it is in heaven is that it move forward without hindrance. Anything that hinders God's will, we despise. We learn to hate it. Opposition to the people of God Doing the will of God is itself opposition to God. And that's what Nehemiah recognizes here. And the result is always going to be judgment. So T.J. Betts says, of course, believers should be loving. But we will never love God and others as we should if we do not have a Christ-like hatred for evil. So this passage doesn't separate the spiritual from the practical. In addition to seeking divine justice, as we see him praying here, he sets a guard in verses 7 through 9, and we'll we'll make our way through these next two sections quickly. The enemies, they multiply as the work proves successful. Enemies were, were present from the very beginning, as we saw already, but now they're increasing to a concerning level. When Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward. Right, so, so now we see a growing number standing opposed to the people of God. Sambalat governed Samaria. Tobiah was an Ammonite governing Ammon. Geshem governed the Arabs. And now Ashadites enter into the alliance, a city of the Philistines to the west, which means now that every 
region surrounding the people of God are now opposed to what they're doing. They're encircled by opposition. And just as the inhabitants of Jerusalem were beginning to feel a greater sense of security, moving forward with confidence, building at a fast pace, their enemies grow in number and strength. And we see in verse 10 that it does have an impact upon them. Right? Not only are their taunts and jeers escalating, their rage increasing, the number of opposition is increasing as well. And so it's having an impact. This coalition of nations begins to plot to fight and confuse the Judeans. They draw up plans to interrupt the work with attacks and threats. They recognize, therefore, that their taunts are only working so far. They have to plan something. They're going to have to do more. And so, again, Nehemiah prays. But here we say, we read that in verse 9, we prayed to our God. It's not just him praying. It's a corporate prayer. They're joining with Nehemiah in praying. The, the assumption could be that they're praying the same thing he just prayed in verses 4 and 5. They're taking up his prayer and praying it together now, corporately. And so we could emphasize the importance of, of praying corporately. But we should also recognize that prayer did not remove their responsibility to set a guard. That's the other thing that they did at this point. They're praying together, trusting in God, but they're also standing watch. They have guards set 24-7 to watch the progress that has been made. The blessing of God did not take away from the labor-intensive building project that they had. And just as their pause in this work did not indicate a lack of trust, right? They, were, they had to build that wall, even though they were trusting God that it would be accomplished, that work would be accomplished. They still had to sweat. They still had to put a lot of hours into the work. In the same way, right? Putting a pause on that work in order to set a guard doesn't indicate that they no longer are trusting God. They set a guard day and night, it says. So, in fact, the people that have been commuting in are probably no longer going home. They're out now watching. They're guarding. And so they've set that guard day and night in order to protect the work that they'd already accomplished. They determined that taking a break from the wall and ensuring no setbacks occur is more important than continuing on with the work at that time and at that current pace. We will see them resuming the work next week when we look at verse 15. So this 24-7 guard was only temporary. We weren't planning on, on indefinitely doing this. But it was based upon a serious level of threat that they faced at that time. Maybe you've heard the, the story of the man who was stuck on his rooftop during a flood. He continued to pray and trust that God would, would save him. So he turns down the man who shows up in a rowboat. No, I'm trusting in the Lord to save me. Thank you. Then a motorboat comes by. And he, no, I'm, trust, I'm praying, I'm trusting in the Lord to save me. So the motorboat speeds off. Finally, a rope drops down above him. He's, he's neck deep in water. And, a, and the helicopter says, grab onto the rope and I'll pull you to safety. Nope, I'm trusting in the Lord. So after drowning, he goes to heaven and he asks God why he didn't save him. I trusted in you all through that. 
to the very end, and God said, I sent you a rowboat, a motorboat, and a helicopter. What more did you expect? There's, there's practical means by which God accomplishes his will. That doesn't mean we lack trust in him when we use those means. We have to be strategic. We have to be wise. Wise as serpents, in fact. As the opposition was strengthened in number, so were the saints who joined Nehemiah in prayer. Notice that contrast. This is a sign of a healthy church. It's been said that the family that prays together stays together. I think that's true of the church as well. Pausing work to protect the ground that had been gained is an important aspect of leadership, knowing when to do that. This was not a pause to rest, although they might have enjoyed some of that at this point. And we know that that resting is important. We talked about that earlier in chapter 211. Nehemiah took time to rest before in, in investigating the damage of the walls in chapter 2. So this was not intentionally a pause to rest, but a pause to defend. They decided to stand watch, and they wanted to be ready for what they believed was an imminent attack. Today, this might look like using resources to prepare for potential legal threats that might come upon the church. It might look like shifting resources for a time to focus on security rather than renovation. The broader covenant community ought to consider hitting pause on their marketing campaigns in order to strategize a defense against an increasingly hostile culture. Do we anticipate the challenges that we will face in the coming years? Have we paused to reflect upon that, to think about how we will respond? So for Nehemiah, his guard was bolstered by shifting people into stations for battle. We see this in the last section. So that's your verses 10 through 14 is to station for battle. First one was seek divine justice, secondly set a guard, and then thirdly station for battle. The, the pattern takes a bit of a turn here. Right? We might expect a word about how the coalition of nations responded to Jerusalem's around-the-clock guard. That's, that's the pattern we've been following here. Right? It's, it's opposition, response, opposition, response. And then a little bit of a side note here in verse 10. Instead of finding out how the opposition responded at first, which we will see that, we learn about the doubts that have crept into the minds of the saints. Their minds are no longer set to the work that they were set to in verse 6. Now fear has taken a hold of some as they focus on the enemy. And maybe that's inevitable. Maybe because they paused, right, when they were so busy with the work, they could tune out the jeers and just focus on the task at hand. But now that their hands are idle, now that they're just waiting and watching, they're listening to everything. And it's sinking in. <laughs> I mean, it's like listening to the news incessantly telling you the same thing over and over and over and over until you just say, I give up. I'll do whatever you say. Just stop talking. Right? Their confidence appears to be waning. It's been said that pessimism in the church is more dangerous than atheism. External pressure amplifies internal weakness. 
That's what Mervyn Brenneman says on this section. So at the same time that the enemies are, are ramping up their plan of attack in verse 11, details are coming together and beginning to escape the council. Jews in the areas around their opposition learn of the plans and they warn the builders and they send you know, messengers to say, you have to return to us. So what's going on here? There's some confusion about the, how, how best to translate this passage, but I'm going to just stick with what the ESV uh, translates it as. Right, in verse 11, And our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. So they're planning a secret attack. But somehow word gets out that they're planning this because at that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, which is probably just a reference to they were all coming. (laughs) It was all the time. We were hearing them say, you must return to us. So the people, the Jews that are in there back from the places where people have commuted, you know, from Jericho or from Tekoa, they're sending messengers saying, return. They're planning an attack. And so they assume that the threat of attack is upon those who commuted from those nearby regions. And while the men were standing guard in Jerusalem, the coalition of surrounding nations would attack Jericho or Tekoa. That's that's what their thoughts are about this strategic or this secret plan. And it makes sense, right? If they're they're, they're in a vulnerable situation, many of their people have gone to help and support the rebuilding project. So... They don't have the protection at home that they need. However, Nehemiah counters their threat with a strategic move of his own. He knows that once he sends people home to defend their region, the coalition will attack a weakened Jerusalem. And so instead of granting the commuters leave, Nehemiah assigns them stations of the wall where it's low, hasn't been built up to the height of the rest of it, or where there's nothing yet, where it's just open, where it's vulnerable. And so this 24-7 patrol, this guard, really is now on red alert. Not only are they there guarding and protecting in stations, they're gathered with their families. Right? Everyone who is, who is there with them should be gathered together within their family so that they're next to their loved ones. And then at this point, Nehemiah gives them another inspiring speech. And he'd done that in cha- at the end of chapter 2. He, he now prepares them to fight. He's not talking to an army. He's not talking to soldiers who have been training for this. They were from various trades and regions. Some of them, their job was to spray perfume on people. <laughs> Talk about being terrified in their situation. They were ordinary Judeans from different classes, different vocations, different regions. So this would have had, it would have been a terrifying situation for most, if not all of them. Sam Ballot, we know, was preparing his army. He was talking to, in front of an army. We can assume that something similar was probably happening in the other regions. So these are, they're gathering together trained individuals to taunt and to raise the level of threat against Jerusalem. But remember, Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. In the back of my mind, I think these, these were empty threats. But notice he prepares 
for the attack. And he says nothing about his position or even the authorization of the king at this point. I mean, I might have dispatched a message to the king at this point, seeking military support, saying, hey, they're, they're, they're going against your decree. Support us. Maybe he knew that they didn't have time to do that, to wait for the support to arrive. So he prepared his team for battle. But notice how he stirs them up to fight. He tells them nothing about that support, just the support of the great and awesome Lord. Far superior to any support that the king might provide. They should remember God and fight for their family members and their homes. Fighting for God and family is a great motivator. And what we see here is that a family worth dying for is a family worth living for, to give everything for. Oftentimes we want to think about the heroic response right like I I would stand and defend I'd give my life for my family but will you will you live for them (laughs) will you sacrifice to support them on a day-to-day basis that's what Christ did for us he set an example he laid not only does he lay down his life for his sheep but he lived a life of perfect obedience on their behalf too He lived and died in their place. And it's only as we adopt his ongoing mission in the context of the covenant community gathered together that we begin to overcome internal doubts brought on by external opposition. So let us trust in the Lord as we gather. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder of the value in belonging to a covenant community. Lord, we emphasize that often, our, our need for one another. Lord, we, we depend upon each other. We need that support and that encouragement. We need to bear one another's burdens and rejoice with one another. Because as we isolate ourselves, we're filled with doubt. And as we face an escalating opposition and an increasing opposition... We sense more reasons to need one another and to need the church that you're working through to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Lord, stir us up in this work. Increase our love for one another even as the opposition increases in their hatred toward us. And may we not shrink from the challenge. May we not be passive in the face of opposition. May we prepare, may we strategize, may we call upon you to be a just judge, to bring your judgment upon all who stand opposed to the work that you've called us to. And so fill us with courage like Nehemiah and these saints that have gathered around the wall. And when we are filled with doubts because of that growing opposition, Lord, may we gather all the more intimately to depend upon one another and the support that we provide in your strength. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.
Well, I invite you to stand our hymn of response or our psalm of response as well. I keep saying that, sorry. Psalm of response is Psalm 5. Hear my words, O Lord. Psalm 5. 